Howdy do, y'all. I'm Uncle Drank, star of the ballad of Uncle Drank. It is a scripted musical podcast about the life and times of me, fictional golf and western country music pioneer, Uncle Drank. The series also stars Luke Wilson, Brian Kelly, Chelsea Lynn, Kinky Friedman, and Billy Zane as a talking blender named Blendy. You can find The Ballad of Uncle Drank on Sirius XM, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Lips LA with Scott Lips. Hey, it's Scott, and welcome back to yet another exciting episode of Spin Magazine's Lip Service. My next guest is an American TV host, media personality, and probably the most famous VJ from MTV's heyday and the host of 120 Minutes. I grew up watching this guy on 120 Minutes. He is Matt Pinfield. Pinfield played himself in an episode of Portlandia. And the killer song, which we'll hear in a second, All These Things I've Done, is actually about him. Billy Corgan calls him the most trusted opinion in rock music. In fact, so much so that the one and only Danny Goldberg, Nirvana's manager, told him, you have so many stories, you should write a book, which he did. And we'll get into that and all the other incredible Matt Pinfield stories from Kiss to David Bowie and everything in between. I'm excited to have him on the show. We met probably two weeks ago, and the truth is we've been hanging out almost every day since then. We've become fast friends. Fascinating guy, fascinating story. Stay tuned in just a moment for Mr. Matt Pinfield. You're listening to Lips LA with Scott Lips. Our show today is brought to you by the fine folks at Thursday's Boot Company. You guys have seen me rocking these boots in every other picture I have on Instagram. I'm always repping them. Thursday's Boots is a bootstrap startup that makes the best handcrafted boots and sells them direct to consumer at some of the lowest markups in the footwear industry. Thursday's Boots tagline is highest quality, honest prices because they use some of the best materials like full grain leather, supple glove leather lining, and gold standard Goodyear welt construction. Thursday's Boot Company sells their boots at prices starting at just $149 with free shipping and returns. They've been featured in all the best fashion press from Esquire to GQ to Cosmo and Vogue. More importantly, they've gotten over 20,000 five-star reviews from real customers. Thursday's boots are perfect for people who understand quality and don't want to pay a high retail markup for a great looking pair of boots that are built to last. So check them out at Thursday's Boots on Instagram. My favorite shoes, my favorite boots. You always see me repping them. You'll love it. Hey, howdy do, y'all. I'm Uncle Drank, star of the ballad of Uncle Drank. It is a scripted musical podcast about the life and times of me, fictional golf and western country music pioneer, Uncle Drank. The series also stars Luke Wilson, Brian Kelly, Chelsea Lynn, Kinky Friedman, and Billy Zane as a talking blender named Blendy. You can find The Ballad of Uncle Drank on Sirius XM, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Lips LA. Hey, it's Scott. We were just listening to a snippet of all these things that I've done by The Killers, a song written about my next guest, the icon, and my new friend, Matt Pinfield. So great to be with you, Scott. We've become fast friends. We, we have. We were introduced by our friend Michael. We were going to see Michael C. Hall playing his band, Princess Goes to the Butterfly Museum. And immediately, you and I just, we started talking about music, 
And then since then, like in a matter of weeks, we've gone out to like shows, lunches. We've just been hanging yeah. out nonstop. I feel like great. you're my new best new friend. It's crazy. It's it's funny, Matt. But you know, and we were talking about this. I was talking to someone the other day about that song, all these things I've done with the killers, and you were telling me the story, how that song came about. So obviously we'll get into your history. There's so much to get into with you. Your stories are unprecedented from the Bowie stories to the Kiss stories. But this song in particular, because we just heard a snippet of it, tell me how the song came about, all these things I've done, an iconic song. Well, you know, I was doing A&R Columbia Records at the time, and I uh, happened to be, like, literally on a virgin train going from Manchester, England, to London with an A&R guy over there named Alex Gilbert who, um, you know, signed people like Biffy Clyro and worked at the label with Damien Rice. And we, we'd become friends, and uh, I was up there checking out a band he had signed called Longview that were a shoegaze band, you know, from uh, Manchester. I'd gone to see them live, and uh, I ended up signing them for the one album, then they, they imploded, but I went and saw those guys play live. And then we got on a virgin train because I was literally trying to sign Coheed and Cambria, who I ended up signing, and they were playing with Thrice at uh, Brixton Academy, the legendary venue. And so we were trying to get down there on time. And Virgin trains are so slow. There's like, I, what I realized is, you know, there's no, nothing goes out on time on those trains. Right. As great as Virgin was as a company and Richard Branson. Yeah. You know, so we were just sitting in the, you know, the, the car on the train and he's got an iPod. He goes, hey man, have you heard this band called The Killers? And I go, no, no, I haven't. He goes, yeah, somebody gave me a burned CD at South by Southwest. Back when you were is, burning CDs, yeah, right? When you were burning CDs, right? <laughs> yeah. Early 2000s. And uh, he put his iPod on my head, and I heard Smile Like You Mean It. And I was like, I got to find these guys. Immediately hearing that song. Hadn't even heard Mr. Brightside yet, but that was also part of those demos, part of an EP that came out in the UK. Um, and just listened to a few songs in a row. On Top was one of them. And I really wanted to sign the band. So, you know, I, I went down to the Cody and Cambria show, because it was basically, you know, what you hear about A&R uh, with people signing bands it was true about Coheed in the States because there was a feeding frenzy. And I knew that if I went to the UK, I'd actually have their attention. You know what I mm -hmm. mean? And they were all fans of, you know, MTV in 120 minutes. They'd watch me. So so on the, on the train, I listened to this. And, and I get back to uh, to New York, to Columbia Records. And all around the same time, I get this letter from the U.S. Army. And there they say to me, you know, look, uh, we think a lot of soldiers, you know, are familiar with you, are, are fans of yours. They've watched you on TV that love music and and rock. And would you be a part of a mentoring program that we're having for a weekend in Colorado City, Colorado? And so, of course, I said yes. I mean, it'd be a service for the country and especially all these guys that were going and women that were going over there and risking their lives mm. in Iraq and Afghanistan. So I agreed to do it. And all around the same time, I finally figure out how to get in touch with the killers. So I fly to Colorado City, Colorado, um, and I spend a weekend with soldiers. And some of them are wounded, some of them are not, but they're all musicians. And it was this cool weekend where they were doing like a competition, like Battle of the Bands, and just like talking about music, talking about, you know, ways for them to get, you know, it was just that kind of thing. Just being of service, being cool, you know. And so the next day, I, I'm there from a Friday to Monday, Monday morning. I fly to Las Vegas and I get picked up in the airport by the band's original manager, Braden Merrick, who now owns an independent label called Bright Antenna and um, works on that label. And their current manager, who was a lawyer then, Robert Reynolds. It's so crazy how the Vegas connection, because he's the brother of the singer 
uh, Dan Reynolds of Imagine Dragons. All right. And then his other brother manages Imagine Dragons. So I was joking, and he manages Killers. I'm like, it's the Las Vegas Music Mafia, (laughs) right? You know what I mean? You know. And then, uh, and then you got Panic at the Disco down there, and all these bands. So um, I get there, and they pick me up at the airport in the car, and we go to the drummer Ronnie Venucci's parents' house. Amazing drummer. Amazing, incredible drummer, incredible guy. I just love him. And uh, and they're like set up in the garage. And you know, at this point, they're a new, pretty much a new band. Uh, so they don't have a live show da- thing down now at this point. And eventually, of course, they become a stadium arena band, and they're incredible live. But uh, they were in the garage, and they were so excited that I was there, and they were doing, you know, smile like you mean it, Mister Brightside on top. You know, somebody told me, and uh, then um, they go, "We got a new song called Midnight Show. We just wrote. We want you to hear it." And that ends up being the last song on Hot Fuss. So after that, they're so pumped that I'm in the house with them. They were huge fans of yours from 120 Minutes. Yeah. And they grew and up, they probably, like me, they grew up watching that show. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it was, and I was so grateful to have that, you know, that connection with them. And then we go to dinner and uh, it's the whole band and all four band members, uh, everybody else, manager, uh, you know, their lawyer, a couple of the West Coast Columbia Records guys come out who I'd worked with for the, for the thing as well. And they're asking me a lot of stories. Like about tell me stories, and it's funny because years later, they end up collaborating with Lou Reed and you know becoming knowing Bowie and everybody they wanted to know about yeah. you know you two, and I had all these stories, which is kind of I guess where some of the title of all these things that I've done comes from, but uh, then at the end of the dinner, I literally uh, I need a ride back to my hotel, and I go hey anybody want to drive me back to my hotel and Brandon Flowers. Says, I'll drive you back. He holds up his hand. We had a few drinks and, you know, we were uh, we were having a good time. So we get in his car. It's an old AMC, right? And at this point, you know, those guys all had these jobs in Vegas where one was, you know, Brandon was a bellboy, bellhop at a hotel. One of the guys in the band was running urine to test for, for drugs for, for, you know, sporting events and athletes. The most random one, job ever. Random job ever, right? And then, and then uh, one of the other guys was working at, like, one of the Elvis-type wedding chapels. So it was, like, it was almost, like, comical because right. it's, like, every job. What would you be doing in Las Vegas? And every member of the Killers was doing something like that. And so we get in his AMC car. There's no CD player, just two cassettes, Beatles 6266 and Beatles Help. He goes, which one do you want to hear? And I said, help. And then we end up singing like the first three songs on that album. Help, the night before, you got to hide your love away. Short drive to my hotel, down the strip. And we're like, you could see like the joy in Brendan Flowers' face. You know, Brendan Flowers, he was so excited to be with me in the car. And we were just having a great time. There was just like, there was this really incredible, harmonious moment. And then we get to the hotel and... He comes and I say, you want to come in for a drink? So we go in and it's like, it reminds you of like a movie when somebody's like a couple lonely dudes, like <laughs> at the corner bar, just the bartender. It's a Monday night. It's like dead. In Especially the desolate Vegas, right? Downtown Vegas yeah. is like a ghost town sometimes it, down there. It is. Yeah. Exactly. It was so like that, Scott. And so we start talking. I tell him the story about, you know, doing the mentoring for the soldiers that had come back and, um, which inspired the line. I got soul, but I'm not a soldier. One of the greatest bridges in a song of all time. Yeah. And uh, and then I was also talking about like kind of where I was in my life, and uh, you know, like I was going through a split with my wife at the time, and I didn't know whether we were getting divorced or separated. There was other stuff happening, and so that inspired all the lyrics of the song. What's crazy is so 
he goes he goes home i fly back to new york like the next day or two days later Braden merrick their manager calls me and goes dude brandon wrote the greatest song about you man i go what i go what do you mean he wrote a song about me and he goes yeah he wrote a song like you know he hung out with you that night and he wrote this song i mean i think you're gonna love it and so that became all these things that i've done which is amazing, amazing. And of course uh you know i wanted to sign them it was between you know columbia where i worked and island def jam and the story was you know that leo cohen and, and rob stevenson the nr guy and i'm friends with all of them i mean Leo tried to hire me at atlantic uh, after columbia had you know laid off a ton of us you know when a new regime comes into record company every two years how, yeah every two to five years <laughs> yeah you know your 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 days are numbered depending yeah. on you know and it didn't matter because we were i was a vice president of a and r and artist development and didn't matter how many hits you had i mean there were guys in there with me that you know had signed j-lo and maxwell and, and all of us got laid off at once you Crazy. know what i mean Crazy. uh but you know it was unbelievable because they'd come and done my radio show in New York at K Rock. They weren't even signed yet, and I had them playing on my show. And uh, it was so Leo Cohen was smart enough. You know, it got, obviously, he started Def Jam with Russell Simmons and Rick Rubin. Uh, he knew how close we were getting. So he ended up getting a car for the killers and bringing them up to his brownstone and going, What do I have to do to be in business with the killers? And so. They signed with him that night. So I got the phone call the next day from, from Brandon going, Matt, we love you, man, but we signed with Island Def Jam. <laughs> and, you know, it was disappointing, of course. But By the I, way, if you're going to lose out to anyone, obviously Lior is a yeah, know, titanic a giant legend. in the industry. Yeah, so it makes and I, sense. And I it love and respect Lior. We, yeah. You know, we get along so great. And Rob Stevenson's also an incredible guy. And so I congratulated Rob Stevenson. I was like, and there were people at Columbia Records going to me, how can you be nice to those people? And, you know, and then I literally took the killers out for a congratulation dinner <laughs> for not signing me, which people would think, what is wrong with that guy? Right. But I did. I, we went down to this like tiki bar restaurant on the Lower East Side. And I, you know, just because for me, it was, you know, I wore more than one hat because I was also in the programming department at K-Rock in New York, although I could never speak on about a Columbia Records because, you know, ethically. I couldn't do that. Like I couldn't when when everybody would raise their hand for a vote on a record to play on the air, I had to keep my mouth shut. You know right, what I mean? Right, right. Because you worked there. Yeah, because I worked yeah. there, and that's just you know, that's the integrity of what you have to do anyway. And so we we kept that friendship up. And I remember people saying, "How could you still be friends with that band at the label?" I go, "You got to realize I wear more than one hat. You exactly. know, like you know, I'm I'm doing programming, and I'm a music fan. Like I love music, and I love this band regardless." That's how I think you and I connected, because obviously, you know, I'm such a huge music fan. I'm a musician. So at the end of the day, like we met and all we do is sit around and tell stories all day down, hang out. And and it's great because I finally found a friend who I can go so deep in music. And, and I will tell you, like, I know you had a show called like Stump. It was like Stump Mad or yeah, something. Yeah, and it was like, actually, you know, it's so funny because we used to do it on MTV as well as part of like TRL and MTV Live. But it, it started as one of the first ever internet shows when you when it was only type yeah and i, I like actually literally, literally did it and it was just an, an hour and a half of people throwing questions because yeah, i felt like that the other day we were having lunch with randy jackson i'm like whatever i can think of matt knows 50 times more than i do about this random band well so. you know no, no i still learn stuff from you and i learn stuff from everybody yeah you know you know but i appreciate you saying that but you know i i always had that philosophy like the minute you think you know everything and i never ever was an elitist i never thought hey i'm um, you know um you know i was when i when i was younger and i was into punk rock you know you were like you don't know the clashes you know that's different yeah. when i was 17 18 and i was like you don't know the clash in the jam you know 
Then I, that that was a little bit of that teen, late teenage elitism. Yeah. But I never really carried that into anything that I did, and I'm really grateful because I keep learning. And I love your story. So we have so much fun yeah. hanging out. Like, it's the best. I and, mean, I, and I mentioned this to you before. It's like all your stories one-up me, but for good reason, because you've been doing this for decades, and you're an icon in the industry. So we're, I'm like, hey, Matt, you know, I'm friends with uh, Evan Stanley and Nick Simmons and the Kiss Kids, and I play music with Evan Stanley. You're like, let me tell you about the time I sang with Kiss. I was like, what? You know, so <laughs> your stories are incredible. We'll get into all that. We'll get into your history. Before we do, though, I do want to take a minute and talk about Taylor Hawkins. Obviously, it was about, I guess what now two or three weeks ago he yeah. passed away uh, incredible drummer I did a, a teeny little tribute he deserves a much bigger tribute than I had time to do so I wanted to get into it for a moment what he meant to you as a drummer obviously one of the greatest drummers in the last 20 years incredible drummer from what I hear incredible human I only had the pleasure of meeting him for like five minutes once but what did he mean to you I know you guys were pretty tight and I saw a pretty touching tribute that you posted to him yeah you know I love Taylor very much I mean he um yeah, because, you know, in those early days of MTV when I was when I was working there, and I wasn't just on air. I was manager of music programming, which meant I was one of the ten people that actually picked videos and fought for bands. So that you, if you remember Buzz Clips, that was like it meant that you got like some major attention on the network, and you know I'd be in there fighting for bands. But Taylor and I had met up. Um, we were introduced at, at like an, at a, somewhere out at a bar back when he was like 23, 22, and he was in a Lance Moore sets band and he'd watch me on TV and say, man, he goes, hey, I love that, you know, you talk about the way you talk about music and you're, you're really into it, we should hang out. And so what happened was we ended up hanging out every time he came to New York. And I remember, you know, this one time where he's like, man, I can't believe Atlantis decided she's going to just sing acapella at the VMAs. He goes, let's just hang out in my hotel. So, you know, we were partying, you know, we were partaking. We definitely were, we drank. We, uh, we, we did other things. We, you know, we, but we, it was always about music with him and I. Mm. And sometimes we would go out to bars and find the best bar with the best jukebox. You got to remember it's the 90s, right? Mid 90s. And he and I would just go there and then we'd just sing songs all night and talk about records. There was this like insane bond we had that way. Where was the best jukebox? Uh, well, you know, it depended on where you were. You know, some people would say brownies and hi-fi, but there were all these different bars. There was even this really weird bar he and I went to that was in the subway station, a Russian vodka bar with this incredible jukebox. <laughs> you know, we, we would, we, you know, you might want to carry us out after the end of the night. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, we just we built this incredible bond and friendship way back then and it didn't matter if i didn't see him for a year or two years whenever we would connect or get on the phone or be at an event it was always the same it was one of those friendships you know you have that uh it's it's deeper so it doesn't like doesn't get weird or strange and he never ever became you know that i'm too cool as a rock star guy ever he was just Loved, and you know the other thing that he always appreciated, and he told me this, like about four months before he died, uh, we were down at the Ohana Festival, and you know he's playing with his side project NHC, with uh, with um, Chris Cheney and, and Dave Navarro, Dave Navarro, yeah. right? And uh, so back when he first joined the Foos, um, I got a call from Brian May, you know, and to write the liner notes in this Queen box set. Which By the was, way, I love how casual you are about that. Brian May from Queen yeah. just calls me. No, which is really cool, right? <laughs> yeah. I, mean, so I, he, I would he be like freaking out. out, one of the greatest bands ever. Yeah, and I my, think one of your first and best concerts. We'll yeah, get into that yeah too. absolutely. Yeah. 1976, Night at the Opera was one yeah. of my favorite shows 
I ever saw in my life. My older brother and his first wife took me, and it was mind-blowing. Even with really not great seats at the Beacon Theater, it was all great seats to a 12-year-old kid. Yeah. And it was Freddie Mercury and, and the whole band were just insanely great. And they're playing songs from the first four albums, which there was a lot of serious rockers on there. Yeah. But they did it, you know, everything. And it was, so I got the call, and... um. And they said that they wanted me to write the liner notes for this. They found out I was a big Queen fan for this box they called the Crown Jewels. And that's when there were still CDs and they're finding ways to, of course, you know, remarket these CDs. Uh, Electra Records in America was the label they were on originally. And then, you know, the, the, the time ran out on the licensing for EMI. So then Disney, Hollywood Records, bought the rights to all those albums all and right. re-released them. I remember them. that, yeah. Remember that? Yeah. So... They put together this box set that was like in a velvet box with all miniature versions of the CDs and albums, the original covers. So there was a book in there. So I ended up getting hired. Brian wanted me to write the liner notes. So I did. And I, believe it or not, you know, I'm talking about, I get to one part towards the end of my liner notes and I talk about rock stars that are fans of Queen and Axl Rose is in there, of course. And then I put Taylor Hawkins of the Foo Fighters. And he was newly in the band. Like, you know, like he was only in there, you know, for a, for a little bit. And it just meant so much to him. Of course. Like, in tears. You know, he was so... That was one of his favorite bands. I mean, he would yeah. sing a, lot, a bunch of those Queen songs when yeah. they would play live. So. Yeah, on the last tour, he did Somebody to Love. Yeah. I mean, he just was... And then, he, you know, he got... To, you know, his dream came true. The one thing I can say about the life that Taylor did live is he had an incredible experience of meeting all his heroes being respected by all his heroes you know whether it's him doing a podcast with Stuart copeland or playing on stage with john paul jones and jimmy page at wembley doing singing rock and roll getting out in front and singing rock Incredible. and roll and then you know also playing with queen to entire mother down at the rock and roll hall of fame induction so he got to meet every one of his heroes and he was such a kind soul you know what i mean he was just he just had that Kind of like, I guess it's kind of like you and I, too, in that sense. And I feel like we still have the excitement for rock and yeah. music, music, all music, that we had when we were 13. I don't know if people would call it arrested development, but it's like, yeah. whatever. <laughs> it's uh, just that excitement for music, you know? And and I still have that every day. I just, I just music is so magical. And he always had that, never lost it. So he was so excited that I gave him the first press imprint ever to see his name on liner notes or anywhere was in that queen box set amazing you know well you know the amount of love that is uh poured out of the music community for taylor is incredible and obviously sometimes when people are living you don't realize how many people admire them and how much love they do have but you know unfortunately after his passing i just realized how many people knew what a great guy he was what an incredible drummer and so much respect for him so yeah definitely wanted to do that for a minute i mean yeah. matt your history is incredible uh, I want to talk about 120 Minutes, how you started. When did you first know that this is the life you wanted to lead? I know you sang in bands. Yeah. You DJed early on. Yeah, my first band in junior high was called Thunderhead, and we covered like... Great name, by the way. Yeah, and it's, it was cool, right? <laughs> now, later on, we found out there was a band called Thunderhead, but they never went anywhere, and it didn't really matter back in those days. It's not like today where you... You know, we were, we were playing the East Brunswick junior high school dances and the teen center you know what yeah. i mean i told you i want to see the pictures of you with like i don't know if oh, you had I like hair. the and yeah I, did you have like the hair metal hair like what, uh, what no no like i because my hair was never really super thick you know as you can see i <laughs> right. lost it eventually but and i had like the, there's some photos where i have this one like shirt on it's so it's it looks really silly but i thought it was right. the closest thing i could find to a rock and roll look 
We you know? all we all have pictures like that. Yeah, you know, it's so yeah. funny when you're a kid, you, you know. But um, you know, we would do Aerosmith and Kiss and Bad Company and Bachman Turner Overdrive, and we even threw in a Roxy Music song, which they were like, "What?" And I'm like, "Yeah, yeah, I love this tune." That was on Siren called "Just Another High." So we were like, but we would play these dances, uh, you know, and do all that stuff. And that was my my first band, uh, you know, and it was a cover band. We like one original song, you know. <laughs> I mean, Did that ever come out, that one original? No. no. I no. mean, like, I, there's a live tape somewhere, a cassette of us live back in the 70s Amazing. recording, which is fun. But it was, you know, and then, you know, I was in bands later, but I always kind of knew that I was the guy who was going to turn people on to music. Um, Were your parents into music? What was you it know, like? You know, my dad sang, uh, but, you know, like, but they loved me. So my mom played piano, you know, and, you know, I took piano lessons when I was a kid. We couldn't find a good guitar guy to learn guitar from which was what i really wanted to learn but no guitar teachers on the jersey show well i was like you know in central jersey it was you know in that jersey show central jersey i couldn't find him anyway you know mm. i mean i didn't know where to look i mean i'm a you know <laughs> right. young kid but um you know it was uh i mean my, my parents like they literally indulged me uh in my love for music how i you know i don't know i ever talked to you about this but you know we were a pretty poor family you know my, my parents came you know from Neither my mom or my dad's fathers, they ever really knew that much. My father knew his dad. He died in a car crash when he, my dad was wow. 11. And my mother's father, uh, my grandfather, also never knew either of them. Um, he died of strep throat before penicillin. Tragic. In 1935. You know, he, and he was like this incredible athlete. And like, you know, he was going to like play professional baseball, basketball. He could do, do everything. And um, so... You know, I never had grandfathers, you know, mm. uh, but, you know, my parents, my father, on the other hand, was like, we didn't have much money. And he was a school teacher. You know, he was in the Marines. So he fought in the Korean War. Right. And then he came back, uh, you know, because he became an officer. Like he was he was like one of the best marksmen in the Marines. He won all these awards. Like he had just insane ability to shoot a, shoot a gun. And a crooner. And he did all these things. Yeah, he did so much stuff, you know? Yeah. And he crooned. Yeah, and he also sang backup for this guy named Frankie Lane, who's like a... Uh -huh. Did mule train back in the day. My dad, like, did stuff like that. And, uh... But he was like a, one of those guys who was pretty good at, at everything. And, and you know, we didn't have much money. You know, because he was a school teacher. My mom had three... You know, we had three kids in the family. And so... They bought a used record player, like this used used player that only played 45s. So I only played the seven-inch vinyl singles, and they bought a box of used 45s, and I was probably about, you know, three years old. And then my mom would go out with me and buy me these 10-cent singles. So when they were no longer in the charts, you could go to, like, the corner drugstore, yeah. and they'd sell, you know, what was a hit six months ago for, like, a dime. <laughs> right. So I ended up with like records by the Beatles and the Stones and Motown and all this stuff when I was young. And I was obsessed. They said I just sat in front of this record player and like watched this thing spin around. And like I was from that very moment, I, I always wanted to be around music. And so. And I love the story that you used to even call like local DJs and try and like yeah. befriend them. Because oh, yeah. I mean, I can't imagine like now, let's say you were on the air and someone called you and like, hey, Matt, uh, you mind coming down to local bar to have a drink with me? And that you don't know because you'd be like, yeah. well, I, I Well, mean, I used to do that. It's funny in college radio, I made, I made a lot of friends that way or people, I'd tell them, come out where I'm spinning. You know, I'd be spinning at this club in New Jersey called The Melody. And I'm. Um, and they become friends with these people if they were cool, you know, as long as they weren't psychotic and, you know. But um, <laughs> but you started... used to actually call the DJs on the phone. Yeah, I would call, <laughs> like... you know, because you got to remember it's the 70s. So 
I would call this DJ uh, Rich Phoenix, who was so, they're so beautiful how things come full circle because when I put out my book, I talked about him in the book that I named after the killer song. You know, I, did, I put out a, a book came out in, um, you know, towards the end of 2016 called All These Things That I've Done, right? So it's named after the killer song. And I talk about him in there. His name was Rich Phoenix. He was on the local radio station, which was in New Brunswick, New Jersey, called WCTC, you know? And there wasn't many, there weren't many outlets back then. You had the New York radio stations, the Philly ones, when you could pick them up. And so there's no way any of those guys were going to answer the phone. (laughs) But, you know, he, and the music was, you know, like, terrible like well i don't know terrible but it wasn't for my age group certainly during the day you know this was like a beautiful music and you know stuff that i probably if it's sinatra i i love sinatra now but as a kid you know i didn't want anything what would you say to him when you called him um i said hey me you know i just hey i love what you're playing hey can you play this for me and eventually i think i i befriended him enough that i asked him if i could come to the studio so new brunswick was you know there's there's a lot of crime in that town too. There's some bad areas. So my, he's I'm like, like absolutely not. No, Please don't. no, he let me come, and so I went up to the. St- I went there. My parents dropped me off at the radio station, and I sat in the DJ booth, and it was like this fascinating world to me. Like, wow, you can play music for people and turn them on to music and talk about music, and I just sit there quietly and watch him DJ. And then I would, you know, I remember he would like, they had records they didn't want, gave them away. So I like found like a big star singles in there. You know, big star sure. became such an influential band. I found these ardent singles that, you know, are probably worth a lot now. But I, all I cared about was, like, oh, I can find new music, you know. And remember it also, you know, my parents, like I said, we didn't make a lot of money. My father was a school teacher, a physics teacher. And so we, I learned really early that if I wanted music, I had to deliver papers and mow lawns, mm. like do anything, feed animals, right. like for people on vacation. I mean, and Case that's- the athlete's urine and get it yeah, tested. Yeah, or... I would have done that. You know what I mean? <laughs> I would have done anything, yeah. you know what I mean, to get, to get records. Yeah. And so, you know, that, that, like, that hunger for new music and discovery started at that very young age, you know? Wow, incredible. So at a certain point you start, obviously you were DJing, you played in a band, but then you actually start working as a DJ and uh, you became the music director at a station. So talk about your first job doing that and kind of what it meant to you. And then obviously all the way up into your first gig at MTV, 120 minutes and how that happened, which is an amazing story. Yeah, you know, it was it was crazy because, you know, right out of uh, high school, actually, you know, we, we I was on the Rutgers radio station, WRSU-FM, and I truly only took enough classes to stay on the air. It's unbelievable because, you know, it's so nice that they put me in their missions video and there's always stuff about me and alumni. Yeah. And I love Rutgers for that. Uh, it's really, I'm really considered, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a flattering thing. But at the same time, I, my whole goal was to be on the radio, to be a DJ. That's right. what I wanted more than anything. And then I luckily fell into spinning at nightclubs. So I was, you know, one of the first places I was DJing. Well, first it was a strip club, but, you know, which was, then I learned just like what fools they make of the guys that go into strip clubs. You know what I mean? If you're not like a rock star, you know, and I I was just observing everything. I learned so much. And I talk about too in my book, but um, my first gig DJing at a place was called Charlie's Uncle in East Brunswick. And it was a lounge of a restaurant. And it was in the era of like area era of like new wave, you know, and, and stuff like that. And so, and what were you listening to back then? Was it? Every, well, I was still listening to everything because you know that I I was happy. I felt like there, you know, music needed a kick in the ass. So you know, punk and new wave, I embraced immediately. 
uh, and post-punk. Um, but I still loved rock. You know what I mean? Like, uh, if the bands were good, I mean, I still loved ACDC, still loved Aerosmith, still loved Thin Lizzy. You know what I mean? But you were getting into the jam then, the yeah, Clash jam, and all Jam, Clash, the... Buzzcocks, sure. Generation X, uh, and then, you know. All the good stuff. Yeah, you know, all that great stuff that was coming over from the UK. And, of course, Ramones. Like, it's funny the way I bought the first Ramones album. Uh, you know, I don't know. If you, you ever told that you. was the first record you ever well, bought. No, it's the first record. Like I remember buying it, like on my birthday. The story about that is funny because there's a guy I'm still friends with today, born on the same day. Another short Irish guy, right? But you know, like we were tough, short, scrapper Irish guys from Jersey, and so we liked the same girl, and we were in our junior high. You know, this was like around the time I still in the band, and we just got it was our birthday, May 28th, and we got in a fist fight. And it rolled into the bathroom, and we both got suspended. The thing was, his dad was a mobster. Like, I mean, a total wow. like. You probably don't want to get. You don't want to get in a fight with that. Sam, guy. No, you know we're still friends, believe it or not. <laughs> like, we're we're actually friends. I went to a barbecue with him when I went back to Jersey last <laughs> summer. Like, you know, I'm friends with all those guys I, I grew up with, uh, and, which is kind of crazy in itself. And so, his dad was like, "What? Well, you know, he's probably proud of him that we we got in a brawl." Yeah, my dad's like. You know, it's embarrassing for him because in the school system he works. I went to school in the town my father taught in. Right, right. Even though he comes from the high school, has to pick me up. And he's like, you stay home here and mow the lawn. And it was my birthday. And as soon as he took off, I was like, fuck that. I'm not doing that. <laughs> I literally hitchhike up to this record store, Corvettes. It's part of a department store. When they used to have these department stores, that it would be like a Target. And you remember when, they, of course, they sold sure. CDs and everything and DVDs there. Um, but... My sister-in-law managed the record department, right? And, you know, you, you and they bust you for, like, accidentally picking up a pack of gum in those places with their security. So it wasn't like she could uh, steal anything. She'd bring home some album samplers once in a while, which was cool. That's how I discovered Rush and Thin Lizzy and all these bands. And But I uh, remember going there on my birthday, having some money in my pocket and going, Debbie, it's my birthday. Uh, is there anything good new that I could buy? And she pulls up. This album from under the counter goes, I hear this is pretty good. And it's the first Ramones album. Amazing. And I look at it and I go, 14 songs. Holy shit. Because at that point, you know, a lot of records are like if it's a prog album, it might have three songs on one side, four songs on one right, side, right. you know? And I was like, wow, like 14 songs. What a bargain. And these guys look different. They look weird, but I'm down. So I, <laughs> I brought home that first Ramones album and never looked back, you know? Um, and so, you know, that's, that was, uh, you know, another important moment, but yeah, uh, Scott, I, I just, um, continued to love music and I, and I felt that things were getting a bit stale. Like it's like so many other people that got into punk and new wave, they felt like they were just too far removed from the rock stars. Like, you know, I'm never going to meet that guy or, you know, I don't, and there were, you know, you didn't really have that much access to them yet. Circus, Rolling Stone, Cream. You know, all these magazines, Hit Parade or whatever that was out at the time. But, later um, on, Spin Magazine. Yeah, and later on, Spin, it was, it was yeah. great, you know, so, which we were so grateful when that magazine came out because it covered alternative music. Yeah. Uh, definitely. It, that's the thing I loved about Spin. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm talking, and, and when I remember getting Spin's first issue and going, wow, what's this, <laughs> you know? And so uh, then I got a subscription, you know, but it's it's wild. So eventually, you know, I'm I'm in college, you know, enough to stay on the college radio station and then i start getting jobs you know looking for jobs to spin at clubs and i get i get asked to spin at this restaurant and so the entertainment at charlie's uncle is me and a guitar player who has a little trio 
who ends up becoming a huge rock star, Richie Zambora from Bon Jovi. Richie and I are the entertainment. Amazing. Okay? <laughs> like it's like, and and it was, what was it a jazz trio? What no, did he, what was he, no he was playing like covers. You okay. know what I mean? Beatles. Uh, I'm was, not sure. He was not playing the best of Bon Jovi. No, they, they were, the best hadn't come yet. I mean, <laughs> right. I think like, you know he brought came on like after the first album or something. I remember. I remember John and Dave Bryan showing up at the. Uh, at this lounge, yeah, and I, I think they were trying to pluck him at that point. Amazing, I love Dave Bryan, great guy. He is a Jersey great guy. guy yeah. You know, he, a lot of times I would go back to Jersey and stay at his house. Yeah, and you want to hear another story that's really crazy? This and this is true. Dave Bryan of Bon Jovi's wife, Lexi, is an old friend. Yeah, of mine. I know, he, I know them both very well. Yeah, and do you know Lexi was a big regular of my club that I spun at the Melody? Amazing. So they built a replica of the Melody in the basement of their house. They Incredible. have a replica Incredible. of the club I spun in. You know what I mean? Incredible. So Le- Lexi always says, she goes, I knew you before I knew Dave. <laughs> but like, <laughs> but and I love Dave and Lexi. They're so cool. They've been so generous to me. And, you know, I remember I was going through a breakup at one time. And I was like, ah, man, I, I, you know, and Dave's like, just, just stay in my place, man. Come down here. You'll be cool. Get out of, get out of North Jersey. So that's. Yeah, amazing, you know, amazing. Cool. So how'd you get the gig at MTV? Because obviously you became a program director. You were in radio. You started getting awards, which is unheard yeah. of. For You weren't in a major market. Yeah. So for you to win all these awards in sort of a, a secondary market was pretty monumental at the time, I would say. Yeah. And then I kind of, I, from what I understand, you sort of pitched yourself to get the job at MTV. Yeah, it's, it's a really crazy story. I mean, because I had worked at this radio station uh, called WHDG. It was one of the first 15 alternative stations in the country. And these, these guys put it on the air, uh, uh, you know, which Rich Robinson and Mike Marone. And I had heard about it from a friend. He walked into my, my friend's record store and said, hey, dude, there's this new station on the Jersey Shore. You should be on. And I'm like, cool, I'll call them. And I found out where they were. They'd convinced the woman who owned it. It was like a mom and pop radio station. It became really important uh, and influential. But they convinced her to stop playing beautiful music on their FM signal and, and <laughs> turn it into a free-form commercial rock station, which at that point, it was post-punk new wave. It was all the, it was a little bit of everything. It was more like what FM radio was in, in, when it was starting out where you played so many different styles and things. Uh, so I worked there. I got a weekend gig there. Um, and I would drive through snowstorms. You know, I'd do the holidays when nobody wanted to be there. And I even broke down on the highway in a snowstorm on Route 18. I ran out of gas and I had to take a walk like five miles in a snow blizzard with a gas can oh on God. New Year's Day when nothing's open. Oh my God. And I go back and I get completely frostbite. But I mean, that's that's paying your dues, yeah. right? So, yeah. I mean, that, that was the really funny thing about that. And, um, you know, so eventually the owner decided she was going to change management. Rich and um, I think Rich had left. Mike had already left to work somewhere else. And um, so they brought in a guy from D.C. And she said to him, she go, like they were looking for a music director, which meant, you know, you were the guy that would speak to the record labels and, and to the industry. And they were about to, he was about to give the job to somebody else. And the owner, Faye Gage, she said to him, I think there's one more guy you need to meet. <laughs> and so I came down. And then I, I interviewed with him, and he said, you're going to be the music director. So I got that gig. And that's when things opened up for me, because then I was talking to all these label reps about all the new music that was coming out. And they were saying, oh, man, this guy, like, loves music. I think for them it was a breath of fresh air, because mm-hmm. I was, like, not trying to be a gatekeeper with attitude. I was... You were a fan, essentially. A and, big music fan. Yeah. So I would pick their brains about everything imaginable, and they were like, God, this guy's looking for reasons to play music, not not to play it. <laughs> right. So it was... 
and that was the, the word around. So within a year of being music director, I won the commercial alternative uh, music director of the year award in one year. And it was the first time it was from like a small market, like Asbury yeah. Park, you know, and after before that, it was Chicago, New York, uh, you know, Los Angeles, Detroit. And then I won it another year. So I won it back to back years in 90, 91 and 92 for the years, 90, 91. And it was, it was beautiful, you know, and I, you know, I, I had never expected any of that, but I, in the process of talking to the labels, I would run into and got to know some people that worked at MTV that were fans of the station, because even though our signal wasn't great, if you lived in lower Manhattan, you could get it. You could get it. If you yeah. lived in the South side of Long Island, you could pick it up. So they started saying, you know, Hey, look, you know, they, you know, became familiar with me and they're like, you mind if we call you up and start tracking like records with you for videos we're getting to find out, you know, if it's real if it, or if it's, we're being hyped by the labels. Tracking, by the way, are people responding to the records? Yeah, that's people calling. Sure. Yeah, so. Yeah, so they call you and you become friends with yeah, them. Yeah, become friends with them. And I become friends with this guy, Kurt Staffick, who's the guy's programming 120 Minutes, who's an amazing guy. And um, I just see in one of these music trades, it says that Dave Kendall, who I thought was a great host, uh, and did 120 minutes that he was leaving and i'm like just for the hell of it i figure i call him up i go hey kurt wh what's going on with dave he goes oh they let him go and i go oh man i'm sorry to hear that w what are you guys gonna do and he's like i don't know i guess they're trying to figure it out i go and i just say this naively not 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 being cocky more naive but just a little well, the way I thought it should go. And I, you know, I, and I said, you know, you guys need someone like me who can actually interview bands <laughs> and knows about the music. So like, it, it, and he goes, you know, I don't know if you'll be in the demo, but and, you know, it's funny. I, I ended up doing work for MTV all the way through like 2014 in some capacity. I would leave and come back and do things like behind this, you know, like, you know, for like their dot coms. And so it's really funny that at that point, before I was on the air, like every day, a couple of years later, um, they would say something like, we don't know if you're in the demo, but he goes, I'll call you in a week, calls me back an hour later and says they want you to come in for an audition. And you know- and You had no experience at that point. None the in front of the camera. It was right. like a deer in headlights. <laughs> I mean, I went in there, I wore a Morrissey Kill Uncle shirt that the labels had sent me with a big rip in it. Like I didn't even dress well for the audition. It was so, <laughs> I look back, my friend, one friend who went with me goes, dude, you went to that audition with like a rip shirt. You know, it was like, I looked, it was just ridiculous. And I was a bit cotton mouth, uh, and not from smoking weed. I was right. cotton mouth from like the nerves. Yeah. And I went in front of the camera and I was like, trying to give him a reason why I should host the show. Because at that it, point, 120 minutes had some of the bands hosting it. Yeah. And, and it was just a different thing, right? They didn't have one host that was really synonymous with the show. And when the bands would host it, sometimes the bands weren't also used to being in front of the camera. So, you know, you'd have these bands that were almost like a bit awkward when they were trying to host it. And, and then you come in and you're like, all right, let me be the guy. Yeah, so I did that, and so I did the audition. I think they said it went pretty well. But I didn't, you know, and I waited a little while, and, you know, I didn't expect anything in particular. I was hoping. I did some sample breaks, throwing the videos. In. I got a phone call. Depeche Motor coming in, and they don't want to host. Here's your chance to do it. And I'm like, holy shit, Depeche Mode. That's so great, because I love Depeche Mode. And I'm like, okay, so I go in. It's when they put out the Songs of Faith and Devotion album. They just had the biggest album of their career with Violator. And uh, it's Dave Gahan and Martin Gore. And, uh, you know, I'm doing these breaks. Never been in front of a camera before, but I'm doing, like, the breaks. Introduce myself to the breaks. And then I'm sitting doing the interview segments with them. And Martin Gore's tired. Like, he's kind of out of it, you know. And 
partying the night before. Yeah, or I think so. You know, that used to happen many times. You know, I found as I hosted 120 minutes, a lot of bands would fly in and just tear it up in New York City because <laughs> right. they're like, "We're here. We're you know, we're not. We're no longer in rainy England." <laughs> yeah. So they'd come and they and they'd go nuts. And uh, so sometimes I and then we a lot of times we'd have to shoot in the morning because you know 120 and Headbangers Ball were not the priorities, even though they were most influential shows they had. But it was like. You know, so it would be whenever there was studio time, you know, it'd be scheduled in. Anyway, so I'm interviewing them, and Martin's looking off, like, and I'm, like, and I'm looking at him going, dude, you're going to destroy my career before it starts. <laughs> I was like, look at me, please. And I'm just, you know, it was so funny, and I'm like, just sitting there thinking, and Dave Gahan's being great, you know? And I've, and I've told this story, but I, I, I have to say it again, you know, for years I would tease Martin after that, go, Martin, man, you know, you almost destroyed my, my TV career. And he goes... Oh, dude, I'm sorry. I go, no, no, I'm just joking around with you, man. You know what I mean? But I love him. And, I, and I've done so many great things with those guys since and been really, you know, like fortunate and love them as people. And me and Dave Gahan became good friends. We used to run around New York City and, you know, do some things, go out to eat. Some of the bands were not easy to interview. I think you interviewed Oasis early on too, right? Yeah, but they were good to me. I mean, we. what's funny about the Oasis interview, and this is interesting because in the interim, they bring me up to MTV and they say to me, like, I'm thinking, I got, the, I got the gig or maybe I got something because they asked me to come in. It's like all the way from Jersey. So I go in and Andy Schoen, the guy who hired me, who, you know, I love dearly and gave me this International Rock Icon Award uh, in this ceremony here in New York City. I'm not New York City, in Los Angeles. Um, literally two weeks ago, you know, he brings me in and he goes, I'm sitting in his office. He's the head of music and talent. And he goes, Matt, we thought you were awesome, but we're going to have Lewis do the show, Lewis Largent. He goes, because, you know, he's our vice president of music and want to give him a higher profile, but we'll use you as a backup. And I was like, <laughs> my heart sunk. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I stayed in touch. Back then, there was no internet. So, you know, here I am. It's 90s. And I, I just went every month or so, leave a message for Andy just to check in so he wouldn't forget who I was. Yeah. This and is pre-email. Pre-email and so all that stuff. You'd have to actually call him. And yeah, like, you would have to call yeah. him. There was no email. Who's like, this all. guy calling me once a month? Yeah, and you know, and he, you know, so, I mean, he probably got a million calls, but, you know, it was on, on his call sheet from his assistant. And eventually, I'm out to eat with the MTV Music Department. They're going to see Green Day at Saturday Night Live. And uh, they said something about a gig, a, a different gig. And I said, I might be interested in that. And they go, you leave HTG? And they didn't realize... I was working like three jobs. I was running that radio station. I became program director. But like so many people in radio, you know, it doesn't pay very well. Sure. So, you know, I was, uh, you know, working, doing weddings, parties, anniversaries. You're DJing like, I think I'll leave all those jobs. Yeah, yeah. and DJing in a nightclub. But that was really cool, the melody. But, um, you know, I so I ended up getting this interview to be one of the people in the music programming department, which is like insane because at that point, MTV really was controlling pop culture, influencing pop culture, was breaking artists. It was unbelievable. It was still in the center of the era of grunge and gangster rap and everything. And um, it was, I went up, I did the interview and eventually, you know, I got that phone call. And the phone call was funny because, you know, it's, it's a story where we only had like a couple phone lines in the uh, radio station. And I knew they were calling me that day, but I couldn't tell the people in the station, Hey, I'm waiting for a call for another job. <laughs> right, right. And there's like, you got like, it's in a house and there's a sales department in one part of the basement, the production people who do the commercials in the other and, and the receptionist and the request line, it's all the same two phone lines. Oh Imagine it's like your cell phone, but with only those two, two things. Yeah. And you know, you can't, it, it can't forward your call. 
so of, I wait hours and I'm like, you know, you get, you know how you get like that self doubt, you know, and you're, you're scared. And I'm like, he's going to change his mind. He can't get through. He's going to go out oh, hell with that guy. And I thought, and so I get the call and, and, you know, he goes to me, Hey man, I've been trying to call you for hours. I'm like, Oh, I'm sorry, man. There's only a couple of lines. Here. He goes, I'll tell you what, come to MTV and I'll make sure you have more than one line. And that was the, <laughs> amazing. The line. And then, and, and then I went there, but I will tell you, I never had any, I didn't think I was ever going to be on the radio again or on television ever again. Like I thought and was satisfied with going there and being a part of programming, like what is essentially the biggest radio station in the yeah. world and so influential as a, you know, what I'm doing MTV. So being one of the 10 people picked the videos, works on unplugs and everything else, you know, all those other shows. Yeah. And I want to talk about the unplugged. I mean, you have so many great stories. I mean, the stories that resonated with me recently when we were chatting, cause this could be a nine hour interview, yeah. by the way, but we, I yeah. guess we have to probably condense it to an hour. Yeah. Obviously the Bowie stories, the kiss stories and talking about unplugged, we were chatting the other day. You kind of told me how you got, kiss together to play this unplugged thing and mtv initially didn't want to do it yeah it was it was unbelievable alex coletti who is such a giant in television production especially in music shows and award shows and he was the guy who did all the unplugs amazingly talented guy who i'm still friends with and do some stuff with and uh you know he had an office across from mine right and you gotta remember at this time i'm not on the air again yet uh, but he comes in and goes hey matt man what, what's with your music department they don't think Kiss is worthy of an unplugged. I'm like, what do you mean? I go, I go, let's go talk to him. So he and I walk down the hallway and we get into uh, one of my boss's offices. And, and I go, you guys don't think Kiss is worthy of an unplugged? And they go, well, does anybody care? And I go, oh, yeah, they care. And I put it in numbers. I said, like, well, you know, if every record goes gold without any promotion, that's 500,000 copies. Put that in 500,000 households. That's a great number on the first play for a cable rating you know what i mean so that's like i put it in numbers and eventually they came around to it and i give the you know the, the music department was great so i give them a lot of credit for realizing that was a great idea so i was there for that moment when the current version of kiss was playing and then ace freely and peter walking at the same time they're like standing over behind us and i'm just watching rehearsals and i hear hey you motherfuckers and that's you know uh <laughs> Ace yelling over at the guys at, at Gene and Paul. Um, and and then I watched uh, that incredible experience. And then, you know, Gene and Paul wanted to take Alex and I out to eat for, you know, and, and thank us for, for making it happen. And so we went to Carmine's on 44th Street. And I just picked Kiss's brain about, like, early albums I wanted to know about. And, and eventually, I you know, they did that reunion tour. And then Gene hired me to do the voice of their second coming documentary which is just, you know, that story's yeah, crazy amazing. anyway, you know. So funny how, you know, he offered me one amount of money and and then I said, you got to give me a little more than that, Gene. I mean, it's going to take some hours and, you know, I want to be part of your history, but not that bad. Where I, <laughs> not a minimum wage. Yeah, Gene. yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> no, but, you know, and but ultimately the great thing that happened was um, one day I had to go fix some lines when I was in L.A., a couple of the lines in the narration. And then uh, Tommy Thayer, who plays guitar with him now, was their day-to-day -day guy. And he said, Gene wants to take you out to lunch. So we go out. We have lunch. I get in Gene's uh, Lincoln Navigator that Paul bought him for his birthday. And I remember Gene saying to me, man, you really do know a lot about music, which was because we were talking about this band from England called The Move that Jeff Lynn sure. from Yellow was in the last uh, incarnation of that band. And uh, we get to the rehearsal space at Cole's, and Peter and Ace are waiting in the parking lot. So you, And they're kind of pissed. And they're like, 
the fuck have you been? He goes, hey, I was taking Matt out to lunch, man. So we're inside there. We're waiting, waiting for Paul to show up. And Paul doesn't show up for a while. Guy shows up with, the, with their boots they're going to wear for the Psycho Circus tour. So Gene makes me put them on. And like Gene's, you know, like a foot taller than me. And a, and a big man. Uh, maybe a foot, maybe, yeah, I'd say a foot taller than me. And then so he makes me put them on and I, my legs buckle. I almost like <laughs> break my ankle. And he just looks at me and goes, imagine walking around in that two hours a night, two and a half hours a night. <laughs> and, um, and eventually it comes to him like showing me a bass. We're walking around this room and I look at the music stand and I see there's only two new songs from Psycho Circus and all the classic Kiss songs. I go, hey, man, it's a great set list. He goes, oh, you like that list? Go, yeah, you know, I used to do, sing these songs in a band when I was 14, and it was great. He goes, you want to have a go? And so I just, like, go, how about coming home from Hotter Than Hell? And Ace looks and goes, I don't remember it. So, And the next thing you know, they go, what, what else you want to do? I said, how about Rock Bottom? So I sing the song. Three original members of Kiss are around me. The song ends, and Gene looks at me and goes, I can't believe how good your voice is. You don't <laughs> sound like you talk. What else do you want to do? And then Peter Chris yells out, do you love me? Which was surreal because, you know, as a kid with headphones on, it was just the drums and Paul Stanley's voice in the whole first verse. So that was insane. I mean, the whole th experience was surreal. By the way, this is why I can't tell stories around you because it's just no, a you story. Have, you have great <laughs> stories. But your stories are incredible. But there's also the Bowie story where yeah. you kind of gave him advice on what to put on the records, right? Which you probably never thought you would be in the position to tell David Bowie this is what should go on your album. Well, you know, it was so crazy because the way that I met Bowie finally after seeing him live as a kid, my girlfriend at the time when I was like a youngster in junior high, his her older sister used to date, date Johnny Thunders. <laughs> and she drove us and took us because I loved Bowie from the time I was like 12, you know, right, around the same time discovered Bowie and Queen and then went back and listened to earlier records. You know, Diamond Dogs was the first one I got, but then I went back and bought Ziggy, Aladdin Sane, Hunky Dory, all those records. And I remember, um, you know, at that period of time, I, I loved Bowie. I went to see him so many times. So when I get in the MTV Music Department, he's putting out a new record, and Virgin is throwing this dinner. With, like, they rent out this place called the Bowery Bar. Not the Bowery Bar. Sure, I know. Venue, I'm familiar with it, yeah. But you know it. So yeah. they have the whole back room, and there's tables, and it's like all the people from the label all the MTV music people. And I meet Bowie that night for the first time and tell him, you know, how much he means to me. And then, you know, they go, oh, Matt, you're going to you're gonna sit right in front of Iman and Bowie. And I'm like, I'm so nervous, you know, because <laughs> this guy's one of my idols. And I know it can go terribly wrong or amazingly right, and I just drink a couple Jack and Cokes to take that edge off. <laughs> right. And then we start talking throughout the night, talking about Mick Ronson, his guitarist, which we're talking about, you know, like a bunch of things on the records. And he, I think it, he was pretty amazed at how much I knew about the history and loved this stuff. And, you know, by the end of the dinner, he goes to me, uh, hey, listen, nobody knows yet. But I'm going out on the road with Nine Inch Nails. He goes, I don't, I'm not going to do any singles. He goes, I wonder if you want to help me. Would you give me a list of songs that you think would be great uh, from the albums? And just off the top of my head, I think about, well, Pumpkins recently covered Moon Age Daydream. STP did Andy Warhol. You know, Nirvana did The Man Who Sold the World. I, I, I started with those. And then I made him a list and, like, faxed it to Amazing. him. And then, you know, and then ended up hooking up uh, later on. But it was, you know, can you imagine I'm sitting at this table with Boeing and Mon? And it's all the heads of MTV. It's not like it's sure. just the music department. It's my bosses. 
you know, Tom Freston, who was the chairman, Judy McGrath, who was the president, and Van Toffler, who's, and, you know, I'm still friends with all of them. It was, had a good relationship, you know, over the years with them. But, man, it, it was nerve-wracking. But uh, it, was, it was beautiful. And then Bowie gave me the number, and I was like, thank God this one guy who worked with me who got hired when I did, Stephen Hill, who ran BET for a while, all right? And he made sure he took Bowie's phone number from me because he knew I was, I, I'd so probably nervous. lose it that <laughs> right, night. Right? Right. So it's on a piece of paper so or then, something. And I went out that night and got hammered because I was surreal <laughs> that my, one of my idols asked me. So I went out with friends and we partied all night. And then the next day, Stephen Hill goes, uh, I thought you'd want this. That's why I held on to it for you. And there's Bowie's number, uh, which was just mind-blowing. So fast forward a few years. You know, then I go to shows with Bowie's, right? And like around that same time, and you come off stage at Radio City Music Hall and go, Matt, Matt, how was it tonight? How was the show? I'm like thinking to myself, you're David Bowie. Of course you were great. And I'm like, you know what? I go, yeah, David, it was it was awesome. And like, you know, uh, so fast forward a few years, 9-11 happens. Um, I'm down. I get a call from his producer, Tony Visconti, who worked with T-Rex, sure. Morrissey, a million people, Thin Lizzy. And, um, and he wants me to check out this artist, Christine Young, that he's working with. He says, come to CBGB's gallery. At this point, I lost my apartment in 9-11 because wow. we moved two blocks away 10 days before, and I evacuated with my youngest daughter, Maya, who was a baby then. Now she's like 22. But and I, uh, and I remember, you know, at this point, I had like a relocation apartment temporarily in the same building as RZA. So I used to hang out, sit with RZA, <laughs> when we were there, which was cool. You know what I mean? <laughs> there was a great little Thai restaurant around the corner. And, um, but it was, we were in this uh, place called, I think it was called the Long Acre House. And so I go down to this set and person taps me on the shoulder and it's David Bowie. And he goes, Matt, man, what do you think about the Ken and Nancy Barry thing? Cause they had just gotten the heads of uh, Virgin EMI had just gotten uh, blown out. And I said, you know, man, uh, yeah, I know it's a crazy story. I go, you know, David, when I was, uh, when I was, uh, back cleaning out my storage, cause I had nowhere to live and I was staying in, you know, after we lost our apartment nine 11, I found this diamond dog sheet music book. I go, you know, I never asked anybody to sign anything, but I, I looked at it that day and wished I had had you sign it. He goes, I'll sign anything for you. I goes, what are you doing right now? And I go, well, I was just going to go back up to my wife and daughter up at, uh, on 50th and eighth street. And he goes, Come have dinner with me. Amazing. And so I get in the back of a town car, and the license plate, if I remember correctly, says Bowie One on it or something like that. And we drive to this little restaurant that he loved in Little Italy, and we go through the restaurant into the back. It was still warm enough. It was like October, you know, after 9-11. Sure. It was like another month or so. And, uh, and we're out there having dinner, me and him and his assistant, Coco, who was with him for years since Aladdin Sane. And uh, then Tony Visconti and Christine come and we're Amazing. just sitting there. And then David says to me, hey, you know, I got this new album. I'd love to hear your opinion on it, get some ideas. Show up at Looking Glass Studios. So Looking Glass is the name that because Philip Glass, Einstein on the beach and Bowie, you know, he had a room in there. Tony Visconti had a room in there. Um, and I meet Bowie and I go to, it's amazing. Like I get there and it's just Bowie sitting in this one little side room and I walk in and just me and him and he goes, man, I got to tell you, I can't believe that Interpol, and I'm not talking about the band, I'm talking about the organization, found outfits of mine that were stolen off stage during the Aladdin Sane tour in Portugal. Wow. Because someone was trying to sell them. I want them back. They're mine. Of course, you know? yeah. So he was so happy, <laughs> Bowie, that they uh, they had found these outfits that were robbed from him. 
and uh, and then you know Mick Rock showed up, who were both you and I yeah, both yeah. became we friends with. Yeah, you know, and I love Mick and uh, Tony, and it was kind of like this reunion of the three of them. It was unbelievable to witness that. I mean, Tony had obviously produced the record, but having Mick back yeah. in there. And Mick it, was such a character. He'd be like, uh, bend over, baby. You're right, Dad. Yeah. How are you? Yeah. You know what he <laughs> said to me once? He goes, Matt, he goes, you're a fucking lunatic, but a lovable lunatic. <laughs> That's what he called it's me. one of his famous uh, yeah. lines. For yeah, sure. he's, he's unbelievable, you know? And uh, so, you know, we, we listened to the album there. And then I get the call from, uh, you know, like Bo, or Bowie says to me, hey, you know, I'd really like to, you know, like spend more time with you with this and just get some ideas on maybe some remixers or, you know, because at this point I was doing A&R at Columbia Records. So I was doing A&R and plus he knew how into his music I was. And of course. Familiar with things that were going on. So I'm in, I'm in the hit factory, a radio uh, a recording studio, visiting Steve Thompson, who had actually worked on some Bowie records and, you know, mixed Appetite for Destruction, one of the guys that it mixed sure. that record. And I wanted him to, like, do a demo. Uh, I did a demo deal with some band, and, and I wanted him to produce it because I knew he produced and mixed. And we were friends, so I, I figured he'd give me a good deal because what, what Columbia would give me so I could record these tracks. And... uh the phone rings. It's my cell phone. I'm standing over one of the soundboards, and I answer, and I go, here, Matt. I go, yeah. He goes, David Bowie. And I'm like, David, how you doing? And he goes, what are you doing tomorrow afternoon? And I said, well, you know, I got the label lunch. You know, like we do our label lunch for all senior directors. And I go, did I just say to David Bowie, I can't see him tomorrow <laughs> afternoon? What kind of idiot are I? Well, I, I felt like I was such an idiot at that point. I'm like, I can't believe I just said that to him. And then he goes, what about Thursday or Friday? And I said, oh, yeah, I'm good, David, whenever you want. <laughs> he goes, I'm going to uh, have you come to my place, and I want you to, like, I want to spend some time with you to play the album again. And so the amazing thing was that day comes, I go to his place. We're sitting on couches across from each other, but very close, you know? And um, Coco, his assistant, is playing the album, and she's literally taking notes in the corner on a notebook of the things we're talking about. And it, the most amazing moment in my life or one of, one of those moments which you're like, man, I can't believe this is happening. Did, and I look back now and say, did this really happen or was this in a meta, metaverse or some kind <laughs> right. of other universe? But Bowie looks at me and says, you know, I really appreciate so much your, your knowledge and love of my music. And I think it's amazing. And I just wanted to, and I, I looked at him and I said, David, you know, you're the reason why music discovery became even more important for me. Because when I discovered your music, I realized there was a whole other world out there. Of course. And that's when I found Lou Reed and Martha Hoople and a million other things, Roxy Music. And, you know, so, um, you know, it was unbelievable. So we listened to the album again, <clears throat> excuse me, in its original form. And then Coco goes, David, I think you should play those five songs for Matt. And he goes, ah, oh, I don't know. That's all right. And David, you got to play those songs for me. So, you know, and I, like, you know, at this point, I was kind of fearless. I mean, I don't know. You know, because I'd already got became comfortable with it, even though it's all surreal in, in retrospect in every way. And um, so she puts the songs on. The first one is I've Been Waiting for You, which is the Neil Young cover on Heathen. And he goes, what do you think of this? And I go, David, you got to put it on the album. <laughs> so he, uh, then he starts like, you know, sitting there. Then he gets up and gets a cigarette. And he starts pacing out and going out on this like, you know, patio, uh, like courtyard. You know what I mean? Like, um, you know, garden. Uh, you know, thing, and he's like, like pacing and coming back, and plays me slow burn, and I go, uh, he goes, no, what do you think of this one? And I go, David, man, you gotta put this on the album. <laughs> and he's like, so he started to like, 
little bit of second guess. He's like sort of wonder. And he's to again, chain smoking, walking back and forth. And I'm sitting there. And then he plays me, everybody says hi. And I go, he goes, now what about that one? I go, David, I don't know what to tell you. I think this should be on the album. <laughs> and so at this point, he's really starting to second guess him. So he gets to a fourth song. And uh, he goes, now what do you think of this? And I go, B-side soundtrack. And he goes, Phew. and he like, <laughs> like, he like wipes his forehead. It was the funniest thing ever. And also surreal. And uh, in the fifth song, I said the same thing. I said, this is good for a soundtrack. And, you know, I don't take full credit for it, but I will say I got him thinking because he changed out those three songs, put them all on the album. Looks to, uh, songs Amazing. Off, you know, which is unbelievable. So, I mean, that was unbelievable to me. And on the way out, he said, I know you're friends with Scott Weiland. I know he's struggling, man. I will talk to him if he, you know, if, if you, you know. So it was, it's just. Surreal. It was surreal. Yeah. Because Bowie was my, I mean, like, you know, like all our, our, course, our heroes, well, Steven Tyler you. and Aerosmith, like guys when we were when we were kids, we were like, all we saw was the album covers and the magazines, the pictures. Yeah. And if you got to go to a concert, and sometimes you'd have obstructed view, you know, like <laughs> like you'd like go, I am going to see Aerosmith, but you're sitting behind the curtain, the not worst. watching them. The Why worst. did they sell those seats behind the stage? You know, what, what a strange did that idea. Back then, uh, you know, like you know, uh, it was Ticketron before yeah. it was Ticketmaster. You know, my, yeah, my, but, uh, I was gonna say my Bowie story, you know, I worked with Amon and managed Amon for many years. And my only yeah. Bowie story is that she introduced him to me. She's like, Scott, this is David. And then she moved him away. I was like, I've been working with you for like 15 years. I only needed five minutes with the guy, you know, give yeah. me anyway, it's crazy. Matt, your stories are, as I said, unprecedented. We could do seven of these episodes and I think we're going to do a lot more of this, but we didn't even talk about farm club. We didn't talk about what you're doing current day. So last but not least, take me up to speed. You got a new show. It's on KLOS. You're breaking new music. Yeah. It's a, it's a rock show. It's called new and approved. It's Sunday nights on KLOS. I'm also doing a show. With DWP, Danny Wimber presents. They are like uh, the premier, one of the biggest concert promoters. Danny is in the entire country. He does like Welcome to Rockville, Bourbon and Beyond, uh, you know, like Louder Than Live, Aftershock. I started doing a Twitch show with him, which is fun. So I'm doing this thing where I, you know, do like a video countdown, but it's more on the rock, full on rock sure. edge of things. Because I still listen to all kinds of music. I mean, I listen to R and B, soul music that's good, you know. I listen to alternative music, obviously, uh, you, you know, and I, I'm, I'm always trying to find something in every, but this is like I'm more on the rock and hard rock side of things, but I love it. And I'm having a great time. So I'm doing this video thing for him, which at the, <laughs> the moment is called Pinfield Power Hour, which is pretty funny because it's two hours, number one. <laughs> it's on Twitch, three to five Pacific on Fridays. And it's literally people, Twitch is something that I had to like comprehend and understand. Sure. And it's all about the chat. But the, and the, and the show on KLOS uh, new and approved is a great show. Like I do, I, you know, count on the ten biggest rock songs in Southern California for the week, and then just interview everybody. It could be Royal Blood, it could be Angus Young, it could be Stone Gossard from Pearl Jam, it could be Mike Campbell from. You know, I mean, it's just you know. So I do these interviews, and then I do album anniversaries, and then you know, I also have the syndicated show I've been doing for years that's on like a hundred and ten stations in the U.S. called Flashback, which is a classic rock history show, and it's been going for almost 11 years or, or 11 now it's crazy amazing so i keep busy and i do like live streams when i get hired to do them you know i got to do some great things like rock and rio where i 
hosted every night and they didn't even let the people from brazil on the stage and i got to go out on stage for that thing and i ziplined across the crowd which i was challenged to do which is insane i was so scared climbing that tower that all the extreme sports guys do and i ziplined across the main stage the crowd amazing and then you know and then I, then that gave me the it gave me the it got over my fear of heights uh which uh and then i skydived a couple, like, like last year when i got sober since i've been sober almost two years now uh it's like two years it's gonna be two years so i decided i would just do all these crazy things and not abuse myself just find a different way to abuse myself sure, you know? sure. well this is one of many we're gonna do so this is not the first like i said we could do hours of this because i love just chatting with you and and hanging out with you and, and as you always say one of many to come so this is so great by the way check out matt pinfield on all forms of social media we follow each other on Instagram. Yeah. You have two Instagram accounts. So the yeah, one well, one of them's not really. Here's really funny. I want to I clarify. The one that says the real Matt Pinfield is from the old radio station I worked at, KFOG, that no longer exists in San Francisco. So you'll notice there's no posts on there. So <laughs> it's Matthew Pinfield. Matthew Pinfield. On, on Instagram. It's Matthew Pinfield on Facebook. And it's at Matt Pinfield on Twitter. So and right. check out the KLOS show. Yeah, we will do many of these because yeah. you are my new friend. That I, like I, I, mean, I, I love hanging out. with I you. I love hanging out with you, Scott. We we have the best time. We just go out to eat and hang out, and we go to shows together. Yeah. We just we see great music, and we yeah, which I love doing with you. And we just like we've been having a, the best time. Yeah. Many more to come. Hey man, such a pleasure. We're gonna go out to eat right after this. Yes, so. we are. Yeah, go. We got to continue our. You know, we're, we're on a tour of restaurants <laughs> of Los Angeles. Yeah. We're gonna do it. Thank you, Matt. I appreciate it. The best. Thank awesome. Thank you so much, Scott. It was it was great to do this with you, man. I love this. I mean, you know, it's it's just been so much fun hanging out with you. It's such a great podcast. We've gotten some incredible guests. I was honored that you asked me. Of course. And, you know, well, listen, there, there's the, 10 parts of this coming. We're going to do many more of these. So I'm honored that you came on. It was such a great hangout. And I can't wait to do more. And I love that, Scott. Awesome. All right. Thank you, brother. You're listening to Lips That was incredible. Many Scott more shows Lips. to come with Matt Pinfield, my new friend. What incredible stories. What a great time. So stay tuned. If you like the show, please make sure you rate. Very important to me. And give it five stars on iTunes. The show is free. It's out every other Monday. We have great guests coming up on the show. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next time. Hey, how'd it do, y'all? I'm Uncle Drank, star of the ballad of Uncle Drank. It is a scripted musical podcast about the life and times of me, fictional golf and Western country music pioneer, Uncle Drank. The series also stars Luke Wilson, Brian Kelly, Chelsea Lynn, Kinky Friedman, and Billy Zane as a talking blender named Blendy. You can find The Ballad of Uncle Drank on Sirius XM, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.